We all need to laugh. We choose truth over facts. And now for a perpetual political protest in progress. Judge my physical, mental, fit, my physical as well as my mental fitness. Coffee time. And yes, it's that time again. Uh, we are recording another episode of the Amalcan Coffee Social Club Conservative Hour of Power and Enlightenment Salon. Boy, that is a big mouthful. I need to shorten the title of our podcast. Uh, but uh, again, we have uh, David Ignell with us. This is special episode number five, chapter five of his book on uh, the Alaska Grand Jury, uh, its historical roots, and uh, where we've arrived at. Welcome back to the uh, show, uh, David. We appreciate your willingness to commit this time. Uh, so chapter five, what do you got in store for us? Well, Jason, uh, it's great to be on again. Uh, so the last two chapters, uh, three and four, we we you know looked at the powers of the grand jury from uh, in the in the industrial age when uh, government was was growing by leaps and bounds and and corruption abounded and uh, big corporations were. Uh, using monopolistic uh, practices. And, and we learned that grand jury was about the only way for uh, the public to promote their, their interest and uh, to defeat corruption. And so uh, because of this broad power to investigate and report, um, what we're going to look at in chapter five is how grand juries have earned powerful enemies over the years. Uh, so we're going to look at the historical means that enemies of the grand juries have used to try to rob the grand juries of their power. <clears throat> and, you know, in some states, and, and one thing to add here is that, you know, the, the grand jury in, in every state is different. And so some grand juries uh, in some states are, are not so powerful, but uh, as we went over in the introduction, Alaska has one of the strongest uh, grand juries in the country uh, because of the the foresight of our founders uh, at the Constitutional Convention. So what we're going to go over here in Chapter 5 is, is some of the things that uh, citizens need to watch out for, uh, even today. Uh, like one method was uh, lawyers would, would, you know, say, well, let's get rid of the grand juries because citizens aren't as smart as us. Uh, so they they um, went around and, you know, tried to get rid of grand juries saying that, no, you know, we're a lot, us lawyers, we're a lot smarter than everybody else. Well, obviously that didn't go over too well with the public, but it's, it's interesting because today that's kind of what we're seeing in Alaska, especially in the grand jury handbook where they try to basically dumb down uh, the grand jurors and say, you know, you, you can't do anything without us holding your hand. Uh, so I, I'm, we're seeing a bit of a revival of that uh, in Alaska today. Uh, another thing that we're going to see is is where people tried to say, well, the cost is too much for grand juries. It's too expensive, so let's get rid of it. And uh, what we're going to see uh, in two or three chapters from now is how that became a big issue uh, in Alaska at the Constitutional Convention when Alaska was a poor state. 
And it was uh, uh, Yul Kilcher from Homer who said, uh, it's worth it. No matter, you know, freedom is worth it no matter the cost. And so uh, we'll see later on how he, I, in my opinion, saved the grand jury in Alaska. Uh, but the, the last thing we're going to see, is, and this is the most subtle and effective way, and that's by the legislatures. Um, they would either pass laws or constitutional amendments that serve to strip the power from the people. And so we'll, we'll see some examples of that in Chapter 5. And then the chapter is going to end with one of my favorite quotes about the grand jury powers by Thomas Dewey, who we talked about in chapter four, the uh, special prosecutor from New York, who uh, eventually almost became president of the United States. So uh, without further ado, uh, here we go. Chapter five, the grand jury's historical enemies, politicians and fuzzy minded crackpots. The American grand jury's unique ability to hold government and corporate interests accountable has earned it some formidable appoint opponents over the years. Occasionally, judges have sought to curb its common law powers to investigate matters. Politicians have sometimes tried to retaliate directly against grand juries investigating them, but those frontal assaults typically serve to draw more public attention to their misdeeds and don't work out too well. The primary battleground for assaulting the grand jury's common law powers has been inside state legislative halls and constitutional conventions, typically led by lawyers or reformists on behalf of special interest groups and or misguided politicians. These attempts have focused first on removing the protections that many states, like Alaska, have written into their constitutions. Once those are removed, one of two objectives begins to emerge, either to completely abolish the grand jury in that state or to weaken it by passing legislation to weaken its common law powers. The special interest groups have many buzzwords to trap our hearts and minds of the public into incurring self-inflicted wounds. Archaic, outdated, reform, costly, are a few of those words. Some of the first attacks on the grand jury were based on personal attacks by lawyers on the intelligence of the, quote, ordinary, unquote, citizens serving on the panels. In 1886, a New Jersey prosecutor condemned the grand jury as an arbitrary, irresponsible, and dangerous part of government, which should be the domain of official responsibility. He stated, quote, it is difficult to see why a town meeting of, meeting of laymen, utterly ignorant both of law and the rules of evidence, should be an appropriate tri tribunal. The summoning of a new body of jurors at each term ensures an unfailing supply of ignorance, unquote. In 1897, an Illinois lawyer urging abolition of the grand jury told members of the Attorneys Association that the average grand juror possessed few of the qualifications essential to his duties. In 1905, the Iowa Bar Association adopted a resolution to abolish the right to grand jury indictments with the, with the support of a judge who stated, quote, let us do away with a few things and maintain the law for the benefit of the lawyers who are to convict guilty men, unquote. 
These attacks on the grand jury met resistance from judges like Harmon Yerkes from Pennsylvania. In 1901, Judge Yerkes supported grand juries as a means of extending popular control over government. He told jurors that representative bodies such as theirs were not outmoded or useless. In troubling times, Judge Yerk stated, quote, the divided yet powerful and also combined responsibility of the secret session of the grand jury has worked out great problems of reform and correction, unquote. Abolition of the grand jury would leave the accused citizen completely at the mercy of a, quote, an unjust or unwise judge or district attorney, unquote. Judge Yerkes dismissed arguments that because the United States wasn't ruled by a tyrannical king, grand juries had ceased to be necessary as guardians of individual liberty. The way he saw it, tyrants even more irresponsible than the despots of old sought to dominate local, state, and national governments. Giant business monopolies, restless of legal restraints, and party bosses who didn't hesitate to break judges and create courts were as much a danger to freedom in the United States as tyrannical kings in England. Judge Yerk saw grand juries as powerful agencies of the people, effective challengers to business or mob boss domination of government. Opponents of the grand jury eventually learned that attacking the education of laymen had an unpleasant and undemocratic tone that tended to rally support for the grand jury among the public. The special interest groups began to shift the focus of their public opposition toward challenges based on time and money. In 1911, a Houston attorney told members of the Texas Bar Association that the grand jury was a, quote, useless and unnecessary piece of legal machinery, unquote, that cost Texas counties between $100,000 and $200,000 each year, taking men away from their homes and businesses. In 1912, a similar, a similar argument was presented in Ohio at its constitutional convention. In 1915, lawyer and former U.S. President William Taft appeared before the New York State Constitutional Convention and attacked the grand jury as a, quote, bulky and costly, unquote, institution that substituted a legal expert for an unwieldy body of laymen. Ex-Civil War soldier and publisher George Putnam countered Mr. Taft's views, becoming an outspoken defender of the grand jury system. Mr. Putnam had served on New York grand juries over a period of 35 years and became convinced that no other institution provided such a degree of popular participation in government. He openly challenged the views of Mr. Taft, stating, quote, there is no other way citizens can bring criticism directly to bear upon public officials, unquote. Mr. Putnam viewed the grand jury as more than mere bodies of law enforcement. During their term, grand jurors acted as representatives of the people of the county and in that capacity could summon any public official, high or low. Mr. Putnam felt that when grand juries ceased to sit, the cause of popular government would suffer great damage. He and other citizens, convinced of the necessity of preserving the grand jury, organized the Grand Jury Association of New York County. 
They sought to publicize the importance of the grand jury to democratic government and to blunt the attack on its layperson consistency. Mr. Putnam's efforts in organizing the Grand Jury Association paid off in later years. In 1946, grand jury opponents had managed to pass a bill through the state legislature preventing grand juries from making presentments against individuals for misconduct that did not constitute a crime. The New York Grand Jury Association teamed up with newspapers, civic and business groups, to urge the governor to veto the bill. They rallied around the point that the grand jury was the only local body that could effectively reprimand lax and indifferent public officials. In heeding their pleas and vetoing the bill, the governor warned legislators that the power of grand juries should not be impaired and should remain, quote, the bulwark of protection for the innocent and the sword of the community against wrongdoers, unquote. The common law powers of the New York grand jury had first come under attack a century earlier from the state's code commission. In 1849, under the guise of, quote, legal reform, unquote, the commissioners referred to grand jury service as a burdensome duty and stated they would have recommended its complete abolition, but for its constitutionally protected stature. The commission opined that, quote, Limits must be placed to the extent of its powers and restraint must be placed upon their exercise, unquote, and recommended the legislature implement this limitation by adopting a proposed code of criminal procedure. However, the New York legislature rejected their proposed rules and did not attempt to limit the power of grand juries. The first attempt to, a com to completely abolish the grand jury system by legislative action occurred in Michigan during 1859. The state constitution there had been revised nine years earlier and no longer guaranteed the right of a grand jury indictment in criminal matters. The state's Judiciary Committee, led by a Detroit attorney, issued a scathing report of the grand jury, blasting the, last, the lack of education of most jurors and the inability of the courts to control the direction of the investigations. The legislature followed suit, abolishing the use of the grand jury in criminal matters and in civil matters, limiting investigations to those requested by a judge. Following the conclusion of the Civil War, reformers in Wisconsin attacked the grand jury, pointing to the speed and ease in which Michigan prosecutors were able to charge alleged criminal offenders without having to go through a grand jury for indictments. In 1869, the Wisconsin legislature passed a bill abolishing the grand jury in the spirit of advancement and reform. The Wisconsin voters approved the measure the following year. A grand jury could only appear when specifically called by a judge. From 1875 to 1884, anti-grand jury forces in Nebraska, Colorado, and Iowa were able to remove the constitutional guarantee of a grand jury in criminal cases, leaving the matter up to the legislature. The anti-grand jury forces also made substantial progress in 1889 when six territories came into the Union as states and considered the role of the grand jury in their constitutional conventions. Idaho, Montana, and Washington authorized the grand jury only for special occasions, while North Dakota, South Dakota, and Wyoming 
left it up to the legislature, which then abolished the grand jury. In these states, the issue typically boiled down to monetary savings on one side and the people's ability to check government officials on the other. Other states that directly considered the issue kept the grand jury, however. In 1872, delegates at the West Virginia Constitutional Convention voted down proposals to eliminate the grand jury in criminal proceedings. In Ohio, the delegates to the 1878 Third Constitutional Convention were swayed by, quote, reform advocates, unquote, to delete the guarantee of a grand jury indictment in all criminal cases. But the citizens of Ohio refused to amend the Constitution when it came to a vote. Reform efforts to eliminate the grand jury actually backfired in Missouri when its investigative powers were strengthened instead. A constitutional mandate was passed requiring the grand jury to investigate at least once a year all officials in charge of public funds. In California, the public's right to a grand jury was adopted into the state's original constitution. In 1902, the legislature tried to abolish the grand jury, but the institution had gained a reputation as a protector against municipal corruption and voters overwhelmingly rejected a proposed constitutional amendment to limit its investigatory powers. In 1907, an editorial appeared in the San Francisco Examiner saying, quote, the grand jury has always been disliked by politicians. It is the only body charged with investigating public offices and the only part of the prosecuting machinery that does not have to go before a political convention, unquote. In 1906, the delegates framing the Constitution for Oklahoma agreed to abolish regular meetings of the grand jury but they did not wish to leave the issue of summoning a grand jury entirely up to the local judges. They empowered the people to call a grand jury at any time by obtaining the signatures of 100 taxpaying residents in a county. In Oregon, reformists sought to abolish the grand jury system at the initial Constitutional Convention of 1857. They were led by a lawyer who wanted to replace the system with professional prosecutors. The current and former territorial chief justices came to the defense of the system and were able to save it, but were, able, were unable to secure a constitutional guarantee. Forty years later, the Oregon opponents of the grand jury finally won out and removed it as a protection in criminal proceedings. However, by 2008, the residents had seen enough of district attorneys using criminal prosecutions for political purposes, and voted by a margin of two to one to restore grand juries in their state through a constitutional amendment. Throughout this period, the grand jury remained in effect for investigations of civic matters and uncovered several violations by state officials in disposing of public lands. Opposition to the investigatory power of the grand jury also developed from its ability to expose prominent officials and upset the balance of political power. In 1938, Pennsylvania politicians became engaged in a heated battle before the primary election. Dissident elements within the Democrat Party leveled charges of corruption and fraud against the Democrat governor's administration. The district attorney in the state capitol petitioned for a special grand jury investigation 
and the court summoned a panel. The governor responded with a radio address to the people that the grand jury probe was a, quote, politically inspired inquisition to be conducted by henchmen of the Republican State Committee, unquote. The attorney general appealed to the state Supreme Court to halt the grand jury investigation, which subsequently declared it had no such power. The governor then summoned a special session of the legislature, quote, to repel an unprecedented judicial invasion of the executive and legislative branches of our government, unquote. He charged the judges and district attorney with abusing their authority and requested legislation to block the probe. The governor's legislative friends rushed through a retroactive law suspending all investigations of public officials. A legislative committee launched an investigation, but the court in which the investigation was pending impounded all the evidence. The dispute went back to the state Supreme Court which declared the law restricting investigations unconstitutional and reminded the legislators they could not abolish the grand jury. This example in Pennsylvania of public officials going to any length to prevent the grand jury from investigating them motivated neighboring New York to strengthen its grand jury system. Rallying behind the slogan, quote, What happened in Pennsylvania can happen here, unquote. The delegates at the 1938 New York State Constitutional Convention meeting made certain the grand jury would remain the people's shield against official corruption. They added a new clause to the Constitution providing that inquiries into official misconduct could never be suspended. The state of Washington followed the lead of New York. In 1941, citizen organizations succeeded in getting the legislature to approve a constitutional amendment requiring at least one grand jury per year in each county. The amendment went so far as to bar prosecutors from advising grand juries, but then the State Association of Prosecutors launched a vigorous campaign against the amendment and was able to defeat it in a referendum. At its 1943 constitutional convention, The delegates of Missouri revised the Constitution to insert a specific provision that the power of grand juries to investigate misconduct in public office could never be suspended. As mentioned in the preceding chapter, in the decade preceding the Alaska Constitutional Convention, one of the most nationally well-known advocates of the grand jury was former Special Prosecutor Thomas E. Dewey. In 1943, Mr. Dewey had become the governor of New York, swiftly becoming a national candidate in the presidential elections of 1944 and 1948. He led the moderate faction of the Republican Party during the 1940s and 1950s. Mr. Dewey spoke at a meeting hosted by the Grand Jury Association of New York in 1941 while he was district attorney. He urged the association to, quote, exert constant vigilance and resistance against the attempts by highly educated, fuzzy-minded crackpots trying to undermine the administration of criminal law by advocating abolition of the grand jury system. He declared the grand jury represented the conscience of the community and stands as the only effective bulwark against a return of the district attorney's office to political control 
and incompetence, unquote. The last two paragraphs of the New York Times article reporting Mr. Dewey's speech appears below. Quote, the grand jury, he said, is the only body which has a continuous existence and is able to bring to book at all times persons who would pervert justice in public offices. Far from being an outmoded institution, he declared, the grand jury actually is a leader in adapting law administration to modern forms. When you are sitting, he continued, you are practically the boss of the town. If you don't believe it, just send a subpoena to the biggest official in town and see how quickly he responds and how humbly he tells his story, unquote. End of chapter five. Well, it sounds like uh, the grand jury has the power of the come to Jesus moment. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, it's, it's just, uh, again, it, it's, uh, you know, it, it gives me chills to, to read in a good way, to, to read how, you know, all these efforts to undermine the grand jury through history, you know, we, we see the same thing in Alaska, uh, you know, and, and in fact, there was a reference in there to how I think it was in New York, they, pro- they proposed court rules to try to restrict the, um, uh, you know, the reporting power of the grand jury. And the legislature said no. You know, they voted it down. And, you know, that's one of the things we're missing in this reading is is in, in what I just read in Chapter 5, there's several footnotes which draw comparisons to what's happening in Alaska. And, you know, to make this flow better, I'm unable to cite to those footnotes. Uh, and, and so once again, uh, you know, urge people to, to, you know, after listening this to maybe follow up by going to the uh, – to the hard copy and reading where, you know, these footnotes then can be seen and it just brings in so much more, but, you know, we see the same thing in, in Alaska that's been, you know, tried in, in other jurisdictions where uh, government officials uh, are the biggest enemy. And I, I love that quote by Thomas Dewey that I, uh, that I ended on because, you know, just send a subpoena to the biggest official in town and see how quickly he responds and how humbly he tells the story. And that rings so true to me because I've been investigating some of these cases in Juneau now for almost four years. And I have, you know, I've talked to, you know, besides just looking at documents, I, I talk to whoever wants to talk to me. And I've gained a lot of information by people who've been willing to talk to me. But almost to a T, every time I've contacted a government official and asked to talk to them, they've refused to talk. And there's a ton of important questions that uh, the only way we're going to find an answer to is by sending subpoenas to these grand juries. And we'll see. Go ahead. Now, I'm curious, in this process of the grand jury, you know, investigating and then indicting, um, as just a, just a layperson myself, you know, I wonder what, what is the power of the grand jury to, to um, hand down penalties? Do they, do they make a recommendation to the court as to what the penalty should be? 
or is that completely left to the court to decide once an indictment has been handed down um, as to as to what kind of uh, uh, I guess uh, response or punishment is is uh, is meted out to these people who are found uh, under the finding of fact to be indeed guilty of of uh, crimes or impropriety. Well, that was that was one of the problems that you know that's a great question, Jason, and that was one of the problems that the that the uh, Juno grand jury was faced with in in their investigation of Sheffield. Um, you know, they 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 were debating whether to indict or whether to impeach. And they felt that the laws at the time were not sufficient enough to, uh, you know, to, to have a successful criminal prosecution against uh, Governor Sheffield. But, you know, they, they were appalled at what they saw. And even, you know, when, 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 the, uh, when the Alaska Senate convened in late July in 1985, uh, they were also represented by another Watergate prosecutor, Sam Dash. And he told all the senators, he goes, there, there's some, you know, and, and we'll, we'll cover the quote in, I think it's chapter nine of my book. But, uh, you know, he basically says, look, there's some pretty serious stuff here. Um, but, you know, the, the laws are inadequate to, to penalize it. So, and, and what you raised uh, brings up another uh, kind of interesting legal issue. It's like, what if the grand jury wants to indict, but the prosecutor refuses to indict? And, uh, you know, I haven't done an exhaustive study. I don't know if there's any case law in Alaska on that issue. Uh, but it's an issue that's been presented with some grand juries, Um you know, throughout, throughout history. And, you know, typically the, you know, the, the district attorney, you know, the grand jury can't, um, you know, they can't, uh, uh, force a prosecutor to, to prosecute somebody that seems to be the, the general, uh, you know, the general deal. But, uh, you know, we, as we saw in that case study in chapter four, you know, often there's a there's a district attorney who is part of the corruption and doesn't want to do things. So that's where the grand, you know, in, in that case, I mean, if the grand jury look, investigates and they believe that uh, somebody has committed a crime, but the district attorney doesn't want to charge them, then, you know, the grand jury has gotten around that by going out and, you know, contacting the governor, uh, you know, contacting other judges, you know, finding a way uh, to to get somebody in that uh, position uh, that's going to do their job. And so that's that's how you get around that. So the grand jury, actually, the, the, the most powerful thing about it, it seems, is that it is a giant spotlight and that uh, absolutely in its report, it it, fi- it 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 shines a light on the corruption of the the officials in in the system of uh, of dysfunction and calls them out for what they are and then lets the public deal with them. If well, yeah, and it doesn't even need to be corruption. I mean, it can be incompetence. Right. Uh, you know, it can be concern. I mean, if 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 a bunch of citizens have a legitimate concern about something. Uh, you know, this is why you know I was talking with Bob Bird the other day and and said. Um, you know, I, I hear, you know, when I, when I'm in, like in Juneau, there's a lot of people who are concerned about election integrity. They talk about it all the time. Uh, 
And, you know, the, the, the director of the uh, Alaska uh, election division, uh, you know, she's from Juneau. I mean, I know her as Gail Nygaard. That's her maiden name. But, you know, she came and talked to our group. And, you know, Gail's a, a great gal. And but, you know, around the state, you know, these questions persist. I've heard and, people call her funny numbers. Gail Fanumiai. Yeah. I mean, you know, I like Gail and, uh, you know, I went to school with her. And uh, and so but but the but the point is, is that, you know, if if they're doing everything right there, uh, that's great. But there, these the grand jury is is the appropriate body to investigate and to look at, you know, look at the machines, look at the numbers. You know, one of the issues that's coming up is, well, there seems to be more registered voters in, in some places than, you know, people exist. And, and, you know, and that may be the case, you know, maybe the state doesn't have the manpower or the will, or, you know, the political body doesn't have the will to go through and, and toss out, uh, you know, registered voters who, you know, have been off the roll, you know, should have been off the rolls years ago. So, you know, this would be something for a grand jury to do because, you know, what's the alternative? The state does it. Well, okay. You know, is this a Republican controlled investigation or is this a Democrat controlled investigation? So well, no I, matter I, the outcome. I, I think, you know, you, you pointed out something uh, in, in this episode that, that, uh, of all of the uh, the attacks against the grand jury system, that the legislative one seemed to be the most nuanced and uh, effective um, in attacking the integrity of that system. And it begs the question, that it, I, I guess it's rhetorical in nature, but, but when we look at partisan politics and we kind of use stereotypes to, to identify different camps, you know, uh, the folks on the left uh, have often been uh, des- uh, identified with that that power to the people. You know, uh, uh, rise against the man kind of kind of uh, group of folks, and then and then you've got the uh, the the folks on the right who are like, just leave me the heck alone, and let me do whatever I want, and um, just don't uh, let your freedom impinge upon my own. That's, I guess, more of a libertarian idea, but. Um, uh, Either way, left or right, when you look at our legislature, I find it rather curious that there are very few voices that are calling for uh, a close look at our grand jury system and what the courts and uh, the prosecutors have done to it over the years. And I would expect that uh, outspoken uh, activists on both sides would see the value of the restoration and preservation of this grand jury system. And the fact that we're really only hearing crickets, save for a few small voices that don't have very much political power, um, is concerning to me because it, it seems as though that, that uh, while the courts may be the focus of, you know, maybe judicial reform here is the focus of a lot of people working on the grand jury issue, our legislature, which you you pointed out, you know, legislatures have also a role to play in in uh, promoting or or subduing the the grand jury system. Um, it seems our legislature may have a larger role here in uh, in the erosion of this fundamental right of Alaskans to be able to question the activities of their their elected leaders and and the officials in their communities. 
Well, yes, and and you know the the Alaska Senate in 1985 played a huge role uh, in in the undermining of uh, grand jury reports because you know they couldn't agree about Sheffield. The the vote there was was along you know partisan lines, and and uh, the Republicans in 1985 didn't have the two thirds vote that was needed to. Um, uh, to impeach Sheffield. And, uh, you know, it was, it was crazy. There's a, you know, we'll get into this in my, in my, uh, you know, later on in the book, when I talk about the Senate trial and the aftermath. Um, but the Republicans came up with one set of findings, uh, after those Senate hearings. And then, uh, the Democrats came up with a separate set of findings. So it's just, you know, truth, Truth should not depend on political party. And, and, uh, you know, in the Alaska Senate in 1985, that's exactly what happened. But, you know, really disheartening was, was the fact that in a 20 to nothing vote, the, uh, uh, the Alaska Senate passed a resolution directing the Alaska Judicial Council to look at a constitutional amendment to suppress the, uh, you know, to limit the reporting power of the uh of the grand jury now to give them credit um the the senate hearing was kind of a joke and again we'll get into this uh in a few days here but um the the grand jury was not represented at the senate proceeding the senate had sam dash and then sheffield had his team of lawyers and it was led by a uh, a watergate veteran too and uh so the sam dash was was instructed you know his he did not look into the legality of the grand jury report he said it's irrelevant he said senate you've been provided with this infor- information and it's irrelevant for you to attack the source of this information i.e a grand jury report he said you've been given this these facts, and now you have to decide whether to impeach him or not. Well, once Sheffield's attorneys heard that, that, you know, Sam Dash hadn't researched the issue, they started attacking the power of the grand jury to issue these reports. And they made a lot of hay with that. And they were going to get into a case uh, in chapter seven, it's out of New Jersey. And, uh, it's a, it's a very important case uh, for a number of reasons, but they attacked that case. And, you know, they said, oh, this has been overruled and it's bad law and the grand jury was misled to, to uh, rely on this. So they worked up a lot of, a lot of senators. Uh, and so that may have had something to do with that resolution. Uh, there was also a lot of politics that was going on. Uh, there was, a, there was a, I think, a Senate majority speaker from Fairbanks uh, I'd have to look. His name might have been Kelly, but he talked about how all kinds of toes were stepped on. And there's a great quote that he has about, you know, after when this is all said and done, well, you know, you'll 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 know who was for and against Sheffield by uh, the gold-plated center lines on their highways. Uh, so, you know, it, it's. Um, uh, you know, the, 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 the Alaska Senate, uh, you know, played a part 
But even they knew, even the senators knew that a constitutional amendment was necessary to suppress the reporting powers of the grand jury. They knew that. And, you know, but then you have the Alaska Judicial Council comes up with this uh, idea that, oh, we can propose these uh, court rules and we can uh, limit grand jury reports through that. Well, that was the, you know, there, there was there was so much there there was a there was an existing body of law that said even that is un you know you you can't get around constitutional protection through these court rules, but the Alaska Judicial Council and three judges on the Supreme Court they didn't let that bother them. Well, my hope is is that uh, with the airing of this series, that enough people will. Uh, be interested in the topic to engage their local delegations uh, to uh, to Juno um, in honest conversations about where their uh, senators and representatives stand on this issue and uh, encourage them, whether right, left, or center, uh, to, above all things, stand for liberty and stand for uh, the right of the people to self-governance uh, in its many expressions, including this, uh, the grand jury. And, um, and that maybe, maybe uh, through a little bit of positive pressure, uh, not something that's uh, negative or coercive in nature, but, but just, uh, I guess, um, speaking to their, their, their sense of reason and, and, um, right thinking, I guess, uh, whether they're left, right, or center politically in their ideology, uh, everybody who's got an opinion thinks it's right. But in this grand thing we call the American experiment, we're all supposed to be on the ship together, and we're all supposed to be experiencing uh, liberty and empowerment and not be uh, under the whims of uh, some despotic you know, overlord or, or body. Um, what can we look forward to in the next chapter? Well, uh, chapter, uh, so we are getting here to uh, chapter six. So um, the next two chapters are going to be our last, um, uh, th- those two, those are the last two chapters before we get into Alaska specific uh, uh, discussions. And so the next chapter is, is the only chapter in my book which goes out of chronological order. Uh, and what it is, it, it's, it's going to focus on a couple studies uh, by very uh, esteemed professors uh, who have written about the grand jury. And they've got some great perspectives on it. Uh, and I think it's a great way to, you know, end... The, my, you know, it was a great way to end my book's discussion on grand juries outside of Alaska. Uh, it's some more, you know, up till now, I mean, you know, we really haven't gone past 1950, if you will, 1945. So uh, these two studies were written in the 1990s, I believe, and they offer a more modern perspective of the grand jury, which is consistent with everything that we've, uh, you know, discussed up to this point. And so, and then chapter seven, we're going to start with that case out of New Jersey. Uh, it's, it's an incredibly uh, valuable case. Uh, it, was, it was like, a, you know, the, the author of that opinion 
you know, actually turned down appointments to the U.S. Supreme Court. And one of the people who was involved, one of the judges who signed on to that decision was Justice William Brennan, uh, who later, a couple of years later, went to the U.S. Supreme Court and became one of the most influential uh, Supreme Court judges of, of the century. And the fact that his views are embodied in this uh, this case out of New Jersey, and this is the case that Sheffield's attorneys attacked, uh, is is very important. And and the the judge who wrote the opinion, it's a thirty three page opinion, and he walks everybody through the uh, the history of the grand jury because he says it's so important. And this guy, the the judge, was actually recognized on the floor of the Alaska Constitutional Convention in 1955, in 1956. And uh, a lot of the delegates knew this judge. They, knew, they were aware of him. Uh, so it's a, it's a very important uh, segue into what was in the heads, what was in the minds of our founders uh, when, they, uh, when, when they cemented the investigatory powers of the grand jury into our Constitution. Well, quickly in closing, um, you know, we, we know that uh, you're an advocate for uh, a couple of reasons, but uh, this gentleman, uh, is it uh, Tommy Jack is the name? Uh, Thomas, Thomas Jack Jr. Thomas Jack Jr. I know that you have a website uh, and uh, you've uh, published uh, some information about that. Uh, you also have uh, uh, a link to the PDF of your book. For those folks who have not um, written that down and would like to find that, uh, in closing here, would you please uh, give those those addresses out real quick, and then we'll go ahead and conclude this episode and uh, have folks join us again for Chapter 6. Yeah, thanks, Jason. Uh, my website is poweredbyjustice.com. Uh, no spaces, just poweredbyjustice.com. And on there, you'll find uh, a PDF file of the of my book, and then also a, a, a little bit on Mr. Jack's uh, wrongful conviction, including a, about a 15-page summary. At the end of that summary is a two-page letter by his uh, oldest sister Yvette, uh, who's a uh, uh, she degree, she received a master's in social work from Temple University and currently lives in uh, Virginia. Very top-notch, quality person. And uh, a little, some of the evidence uh, is on my site, including the uh, what I call the smoking gun. It was the uh, it was the confession of Mr. Jack's accuser to a teacher. Uh, the teacher, uh, you know, put it in a, a one letter or one page letter, and uh, the facts headers on that document show that it was received by the OCS, and then the OCS uh, forwarded it to the uh, Juno District Attorney's Office and they proceeded to bury it. Uh, critical exonerating evidence that was withheld from the grand juries and uh, you know, actually withheld from Mr. Jack's uh, defense team for almost a year. So, so like all it. things that we bury, this episode is gonna be buried <laughs> for the day. I will encourage you to read the remainder of the commentary on Mr. Jack. And before we conclude our series, you will definitely hear more about him. Thank you very much, David. And uh, we encourage you to join us again uh, for our next episode tomorrow. Have a great evening, everybody.